So we're in Judges chapter 11. We started it last week. We're in the Jephthah cycle. And we met Jephthah last week as the people from Gilead, the Transjordan, were looking for someone who could save them from the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the descendants of Lot from the incestuous relationship that he had with his daughters. So they had two sons, uh, Moab and Ammon, and they became the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they were the people who lived across in what is modern-day Jordan. And throughout Israel's history, they had a tenuous relationship with them. And we saw that last week, Israel, by this point in chapter 10, had completely Canaanized themselves. The text gives a sevenfold description of their idolatry that they not only stopped worshiping Yahweh, but also worshiped seven of the gods of the surrounding peoples. In other words, totally pagan at this point. And that's key to understanding this whole Jephthah uh, cycle. Because you come to this text as a story, like you know, somebody's preaching on it, or you're reading a storybook, or whatever, and you come to it out of the context of where Israel is at the time, and you're tempted to read Jephthah as a wonderful hero, or at least a flawed hero. But in fact, he's a pretty thoroughly pagan warlord. And that's something that we need to keep in mind, because that's how the narrator of the book has set this whole section up. Israel is at the bottom of its downward spiral. Not quite at the bottom, but they're getting there. They're like on the second to last downturn. And all of everything about Israel's society is pagan. It's Canaanite, including their practices and their religion. So while Jephthah is, is, uh, comes on the scene and, and makes a show of, of bringing Israel back to worshiping Yahweh, his actions are ambiguous at best, evil at worst, as we're going to see. And so, did he have faith in God? You know, this raises the point because the book of Hebrews is going to list a bunch of people that did stuff by faith. And Jephthah is going to be one of those people that it lists. And we're used to thinking of that chapter in Hebrews as the hall of heroes. But we really need to pay better attention to the source material because not everybody in that section are heroes in their own setting. Whatever they accomplished was accomplished by faith, but that doesn't say anything about their character or their lives overall. The greatest blessing, those of you that were here when we did Numbers, if you remember, the greatest blessing ever pronounced over Israel by a human being other than God was by a pagan prophet who led Israel into apostasy. That was during the Balaam story. So it's important to keep in mind and not have a simplistic view of the Old Testament or the New Testament that when somebody does something by faith, it automatically means they're a hero. Because they're not. Sometimes they're pretty terrible. And the faith that they show is faith in spite of their lives and their their outlook rather than because of it. And I want to say that that's what we see when we get to Jephthah because we stopped. They had just, basically, he was the son of a prostitute. Uh, born of illegitimate marriage to his father Gilead from the region of Gilead or the clan of Gilead. And this is across the Jordan. And he, was, he, he, he ran off or he was driven out by his brothers and, because they didn't want him to get the inheritance. And so he grew up on the run. He grew up an uh, you know, uh, illegitimate wanderer, a ruffian. And he, he surrounded himself with, um, the NIV we said last week said adventurers, but that's a really not a good translation at all because it's, it's, it's the same thing that was in the previous chapter, 
uh, emptiness, men of emptiness, men of no character, mercenaries, gang members. That's the way to think of Jephthah, is he's a gang leader, he's a warlord, he's a mafia dog. He is a guy who has power, and he's had to have it because he was driven out, so he's got a just totally wrecked background to begin with. And the Gileadites go to him and say, you lead us. At no point in this story does God raise Jephthah up. He's chosen by the people who need somebody strong to fight off the Ammonites who have come and oppressed them. That's the situation. So it's like going to a powerful mafia don for protection from a rival gang. Something like that. Going to the Bloods because the Crips are coming on your territory. or Whatever. I mean, just think, think of something that works in that instance. But that's what's going on here. And that never says that God is the one that chooses Jephthah or raises him up. But rather, Israel has produced this as their leader. And so, he secures uh, his leadership. He, they ask him to lead, and he says, uh, he kind of hems and haws, but, but negotiates with them until finally they make him head. So now it's time to take care of business, and that's where we stopped in verse 12. After he goes and he, he, he makes a solemn pledge before Yahweh, the people are making a show of turning back to God. Remember, they had asked God to forgive them in the last chapter, and God didn't say anything. The text just said God was wearied or was impatient at their efforts. And some of the t- translations say, or God was, could stand their com- uh, misery no longer. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, check the podcast. But regardless, God is not in a uh, super communicative mood in these sections. He's, he's very distant in this entire part of Judges. And that's part of how we know Israel has uh, plumbed such depths of apostasy. So, it's time to take care of business. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against us that you've attacked our country? So first thing, Jephthah's going to send a messenger because that's what you do before you battle in the ancient world. And he's basically saying, what's your problem? Why have you attacked us? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnod to the Yabok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So the claim is when Israel came out of Egypt, they took all this Transjordan area. The problem is it's not true. That's a claim. It's a historically false claim that the uh, Ammonite king is making because this land never belonged to the Ammon. It belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And it belonged to Moab, not to Ammon. <clears throat> and so, and Israel never took any of the land until they were attacked. And so Jephthah is actually going to set the, or try to set the record straight in this next section. So Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says. And that's interesting because usually if it were speaking on God's behalf, you'd say this is what the Lord says or, or something like that. But he's like, this is what I'm saying. Speaking in the third person. So he's already holding an elevated view of himself. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. That's way down in the south. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed down at Kadesh. Next they traveled through the desert, skirting the land of Edom and Moab. So Israel, instead of going straight up into the land, they went around, they went the long way. And passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arna. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. So this is all during the Numbers chapter 21, around that time. And Israel was very careful to not go into the lands of uh, Edom or Moab or Ammon, because God told them not to in Deuteronomy. He said, don't take those lands. I've given 
That's their land. You're not going to take it from them. Your land is Canaan. So then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sion, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men, encamped at Yahaz, and fought with Israel. So Israel was attacked. They said, hey, we just want to pass through. Just let us by. We're not going to take your land. We'll, we'll pay back any water that we drink, any produce that we eat. All of this is back in Numbers. Uh, go check that section if you want a recap of this. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites, who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnod to the Yabok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? In other words, this was never your land to begin with, Ammon. You had your land. We avoided your land. This is land that God gave us in battle against the people who attacked us. And in the ancient world, remember, it was believed that gods were territorial and that the gods of one territory, when armies fought, it was the gods of one territory fighting with the gods of the other territory. And the god who was strongest, that army would win. And that was the way the gods settled disputes. So it's very intertwined, this concept of holy war, national uh, fighting for our god and our land. So now, since the Lord God of Israel has driven the Amorites out before His people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever Yahweh our God has given us, we will possess. So he says, this is already settled. If Your God Chemosh... Now this is where it gets interesting because Ammon's God wasn't Chemosh. Ammon's God was Moloch. Chemosh was the God of the Moabites. And so Jephthah's intentionally or unintentionally conflating Ammon and Moab because they were so close together. But he's actually addressing them as if they were the Moabites uh, in this section. So it's, it, scholars are divided. They don't know whether Jephthah's wrong. In this, he's just wrong. Uh, or whether he's intentionally, like kind of when you kind of insultingly call somebody who's Chinese, Japanese, or, or something like that. You know, like you're just like, ah, I don't know, all you... You Asia, you're all the same. You know, that kind of thing. Like, oh, Mexican, Puerto Rican, eh, it's all the same thing. You know, like just kind of a, a, a racial dig or an ethnic dig at somebody. And, and so other scholars think that's kind of what Jephthah's doing here. Is he's like, ah, Moabite, Ammonite, Chemosh, Moloch, who cares? You're all the same. Take what your God gave you, which is nothing. Because our God's the one who reigns. So it's, I think it's more likely that that's what he's doing, that he's kind of just, pfft, you and your gods, uh, you know, just giving them a slight. But either way... Uh, what he's saying is the message is still the same, is this has already been settled by God, and, and this is our land, and we've been here for well long enough. And he goes on then to remind them, he says, uh, he said, will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? That's a reference back in Numbers to the Balaam saga. When King Balak saw Israel and said, I can't fight them, there's too many, and they're going to swallow up my land, so let me call Balaam to come curse them. So it's a little bit of irony. Like, Balak did oppose Israel, or he tried to, but he couldn't ultimately. And Balaam ends up giving Israel the greatest blessing in their history and basically says nobody's going to be able to defeat these people from the outside because of who they follow, which is God. And interestingly, though, 
the Balaam saga, which he's referencing here, you go back and read it, remember Balaam told the, the, the Gentile, the Moabites and the others, he said, hey, you're not going to beat Israel because their God's too strong. But if you get them to reject their God, then his presence is removed, his protection is removed, and then they can be defeated. And that's exactly what Balaam enticed, the, or the people enticed Israel to do. And that was the whole thing with Phineas and stabbing the two and the ten, all that stuff. If you missed it, we're not going to go back over it. Check the podcast for it. But the whole point of the Balaam saga was Israel cannot be destroyed by an external enemy, but they absolutely can be destroyed if you sever their covenant relationship. If you get them to abandon Yahweh, Yahweh's protection is removed from them. And that's exactly what has happened time and time and time and time again in the book of Judges. Israel's done evil. And God has removed His protection. And Israel's enemies have come in and attacked. So it's very interesting that this is who Jephthah chooses to note. And, and the astute observer would have probably made that connection or at least been like, yeah, this, I remember that episode. And, and the, whole Balaam, the whole point of the Balaam saga was Israel needs to remain faithful to God or else they will fall. And that's what we see. So it's just there's, there's layers of connections here uh, that you can tease out. But he's basically telling the king of the Ammonites, hey, look, why, why are you doing... Not even the Moabite king tried to attack us like you have. Not even Balak, who wanted to destroy us, tried to attack us. Even he accepted after the whole Balaam saga that, that God is the one in charge and this is indeed our land. So even he accepted. Why are you all of a sudden uh, making a fuss about it? In fact, verse 26, for 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon the Aurora, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. This whole area. For 300 years we've been here, is basically what he's saying. Why didn't you retake them during that time? So you've had 300 years if you've wanted to get, if you really think we've been, you've been wronged, which you haven't, you had plenty of time to correct this. Why are you doing it now? This is all of uh, Jephthah's speech to the king. So he ends at verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you are doing wrong wrong by waging war against me. Let Yahweh the judge decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So now he calls on God, Yahweh, to be the judge. And Yahweh is the one who is going to decide. And how is he going to decide? Through battle. That's what he's implying. And this is, so this is not a try to negotiate. This is a show of force and a, hey, I'm going to come fight you. And this is giving the Ammonite king one chance to get out of here. Because Yahweh is about to, be, to, about to judge between his people and the others. And so <clears throat> he's invoking God as judge. Now this is really important too. This is another detail. This gets lost in the next section that people find so troubling. Is, is Jephthah has established that what is about to happen is going to be a case that God is going to be the judge. Now, there's one thing that the Torah absolutely forbids when it comes to judges and cases, and that is bribing a judge. Bribing a judge is seen as the number, it's one of the worst evils that you can do because it completely subverts justice. And all throughout, the prophets rail against judges who take bribes and witnesses who bribe judges, or false witnesses who connive with judges and pervert justice, and all of this stuff. That's an important concept to keep in mind because Jephthah has set up Yahweh as the judge in this situation 
which is going to be a battle between him and the Ammonites. And that is key because he is about to turn around in the next section and try to bribe the judge. And that's a clue as to what's so disturbing about his action in this next section. So, verse 28, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So the king, who cares? Bring it on. So there's going to be a battle and God is going to be the judge of whose land this actually is. And so therefore, verse 29, then the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon Jephthah. Now in this book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord, whenever it's come upon a judge, there has been uh, continually diminishing results throughout the book. So the first time the Spirit comes on Othniel, he cleans house. And then the Spirit comes on Gideon, it's kind of a mixed bag. He does some good stuff, but he also does some bad stuff. The spirit comes on a, a spirit that comes to Abimelech is a divisive spirit that actually causes division among Abimelech and his and the men that he rules over. And then now in the Jephthah account, the spirit is going to come on him. And there's once again, it's going to be ambiguous what's going to happen. And then in the Samson story, the last judge, the spirit of God's going to come, and it's almost not going to matter. I mean, it'll help Samson fight some personal battles, but in terms of delivering Israel, it's not really going to do much at all. And so you're seeing this, the Spirit of God acting in the age of the judges is ambiguous at best in terms of what it accomplishes and what the judges accomplish. So the Spirit comes upon Jephthah. He crossed the Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So he's going to battle. The Spirit of God comes on the judge. The judge leads the people into battle. And Jephthah made, or advanced against the Ammonites. <clears throat> Verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, the NIV words this ambiguously. It can also be worded as whoever comes and meets me or whoever <clears throat> comes out of the door of my house to meet me will be a sacrifice. And I will sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So the text, there's, this is where interpreters divided. Is, is he making a vow that whatever animal comes to meet him some say that doesn't make much sense. Animals don't, cows don't come out to meet you after a battle. That's what people do. That's what your household servants do. That's what the townsfolks do. There's celebration. There's dancing. There's festivals. And so scholars are divided. Some say that Jephthah is saying, whatever animal I see first when I get home, I'll sacrifice to you. Maybe. The text allows that. But other interpreters point out, uh, the, the Hebrew is more specific that he's talking about a person and that he's vowing that whoever he sees first, he will sacrifice to God as a burnt offering if God gives him this victory. Now, we have to pause. Why would he think that God would ever honor such a vow? Well, the answer is in this section. Because Israel is thoroughly paganized. Israel is thoroughly Canaanite. And they worship gods like Moloch and Chemosh. And you know how you get the favor of Moloch and Chemosh? By sacrificing people. We see this in 2 Kings when one of the kings, Misha, wants to uh, uh, d defend his, his territory against an attack. And so to get the favor of the Canaanite gods, he actually sacrifices his own child. This was not out of the ordinary in the Canaanite, Ammonite, Moabite culture. But it's totally abhorrent 
to Israelite culture. And this is where we see, the, again, the canonization of Jephthah. He is a pagan warlord. Even though he's Israelite by birth, he is pagan by action. Even though he's calling on the name of Yahweh, he's taking that name in vain. Because at best, he's trying to bribe the judge. He's just appealed. Yahweh is going to judge between us in this battle. And now he's saying, hey, psst, judge, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice what's important to me to you. And he's probably, th if, he, if he's thinking of a person, he's thinking of the servants who would come out and meet him or some of his fellow countrymen or whoever would come and meet him. And he, okay, one person, yeah, I'll sacrifice them for, you know, to ensure victory and ensure my continued leadership of this people and all of that. So this is a thoroughly pagan vow that's right at home in the, in the worship of Chemosh or Moloch, but totally abhorrent to worship of Yahweh as any reader of Torah by this point would know. And yet Jephthah doesn't seem to know, or if he does, he doesn't seem to care. So verse 32, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. This is part of the tragedy of this story is that we're going to see is God saved Israel through this. God can draw a straight line with a broken stick or a broken crown or whatever you want to pick, like, or a crooked stick. I don't know how the saying goes. Make up your own saying. The point is this, that God can use flawed, terrible people. Remember Balaam, a pagan prophet who was evil and, and, and led Israel into disaster. And, and came to epitomize the, the spirit of enticement into paganism. Yet, that is who God delivered Israel from Balak back in the book of Numbers through. So it's important to keep that in mind. God delivering people doesn't mean that God's putting His stamp of approval on the people that He is operating through. There are a lot of bad people that God uses to accomplish stuff in Scripture, and I would argue even today. And so we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we end up with a scenario that we think that God is approving of what Jephthah has vowed, and even more so of what he's about to do. So Jephthah went over to fight. The Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karmim, and thus Israel subdued Ammon. So the people of Israel is delivered from their enemies, from the Ammonites, because of this pagan warlord who made a rash or an insidious vow and is doing everything he can to be the man, to be the, the, the king, to, to rule the area, to, to put down his enemies. And he's doing it in the name of Yahweh. But he's doing it with a thoroughly pagan view of Yahweh. And we'll see that right here. Verse 34, When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. <coughs> this contrast, this makes the reader think back to uh, Genesis 22 and to the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God says, sacrifice Isaac, your son, the one whom you love. In other words, to emphasize it, now there's a threefold emphasis on the tragedy of this one. Is his daughter, his only child. He had no children except her. The narrator is making it absolutely clear. This is the lineage of Jephthah. And, and because of his vow, now his response, he realizes the tragedy. Verse 35, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now, Right here we see his deficient theology. Right here we see his pagan theology. He should have known 
His Torah. He should have known. Leviticus 27 specifically offers or specifically states that you, when a vow is made of a person, you can substitute a monetary amount for that person. God does not, has not, and will not ever want people human sacrifice. He finds it abhorrent. He will later in the prophets tell Israel, this is, not, this is something that didn't even come into my mind that you guys have participated in because of your paganness and your canonization. He'll specifically tell Israel about that. But yet, in this case, Jephthah thinks like the gods of the ancient world, when you make a vow, you have to keep it no matter what. And in Scripture, yes, when you make a vow, you have to keep it, but God Himself put exceptions in there when that vow, when keeping that vow would lead to even greater evil. And so, he should have known. Jephthah should have known. But Israel's been thoroughly pagan for like 18 years now. They've been worshiping Chemosh and Moloch and the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Egyptians and every god that they can think of except for Yahweh. So, of course, this is the worldview that they're steeped in. People sacrifice their children to get the gods' attention. That's part of why God was judging the Canaanites by sending Israel in to drive them out was because they participated in child sacrifice. So this is not something that would be totally foreign to Jephthah or his family or Israel at the time. It's one of the sad things about how far their society had denigrated that this is even entertained, much less normalized. But it was. And we know it was because look at his daughter's response. My father, she replied, you've given your word to Yahweh. Do to me just as you promised. Now that Yahweh has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. There's no word in here about delivering Israel. It's avenging you against your enemies because you're a powerful warlord. And that's what this was all about. And so now the gods, God Yahweh, you know, whatever we know about Him, uh, He's given you your victory, so you've got to sacrifice me. That's how it works. And so there's this pagan piety that His daughter exhibits in this case that's absolutely abhorrent to the God of Israel. But within their twisted view and what Israel has sunk to, it makes perfect sense, even if it is tragic. There's stories in, in Greek literature about this same exact thing in other ancient Near East cultures where the, the, the parents would sacrifice their children and, and it was seen as an utmost mark of piety and devotion to the gods and, and it was seen as a tragedy and plays were written about it and that kind of thing. It was common in the ancient world and it was abhorrent to God. So she says, verse 37, but grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. I'll never get married, which means I'll never have children, which means our family line ends with me. That's the tragedy of her, her virginity. Not that, that, she, that she didn't get to experience sex, but that she didn't get to carry on the family name. The dynasty ends here. So verse 38, you may go, he said, and he kept her to go, and he, he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. The text doesn't even, the, the, the narrator can't even say he sacrificed her because it's so abhorrent to Israel. He doesn't even state what he did. That's how, there, there are these clues in the text that let you know. Now, in the medieval period, I'll finish, we've got like one, two minutes left. In the medieval period, some readers were so disturbed by this story that they said, okay, wait, th this seems to be God approving of this. Missing all the cues or either overlooking all the cues in the text to show God doesn't approve of any of this, but that this is a point of Israel's uh, uh, dark ages that we're in. 
And so they tried, they've tried to rescue Jephthah somehow. They've read in the New Testament that he's seen as a man of faith. So they say, well, surely, surely he wouldn't have actually sacrificed her. So uh, David Kimchi, who is a medieval rabbi, and people since him have argued, but he was the first one, that instead of sacrificing her, he dedicated her to Yahweh, to God, and she remained perpetually a virgin. In other words, she became basically an ancient nun. And that was him giving her as a sacrifice. And they compare, they, they make uh, arguments, you know, we see this because when she lamented, she didn't lament, oh, you're gonna, I'm going to die, but rather I'm not going to ever know a man. So therefore that shows us that she was lamenting that she would perpetually be a virgin, not that she would actually be killed. Um, and and they've, you know, there's been arguments that have put forward on both sides. Honestly, though, that's the majority of the readers of this text have always said, no, the text is actually pretty clear. Uh, he did to her as he had vowed, and he vowed he would offer whatever he saw as a burnt offering, not as a perpetual virgin. So you can read the commentaries if you want. You can read the theologians. You will read two views. You will read to them who swear up and down, no, he just dedicated her to a life of virginity. Just know that that's a later view. I mean, it's wrong. The text is ambiguous, and the narrator is intentionally avoiding the term for human sacrifice, whether out of distaste or whether because he actually vowed her as a perpetual virgin, as some have argued. I think the burden of proof lies on that to make that case. I think that's a little more far-fetched. I think he actually did do what every Canaanite warlord would have done in that time, which is say, if I want to get the God to win my battle, I need to offer him the most important thing to me. And in this case, his daughter. And that would have been right at home in the Canaanite world, in the pagan world. And that is the tragedy of this chapter, is that, that on the eve of this victory, what should have been an incredible victory, uh, is, is, is forever tainted by this act of depravity that Jephthah does. And this characterizes Israel at the time in their fallenness. And it's only going to go downhill from here. It's only going to get worse throughout the book of Judges, especially you see it in the treatment of women. Compare Jephthah's daughter with Caleb's daughter that the book started with. Aksa asked her father, he gave her life-giving springs. Jephthah, in order to secure his dynasty, ends up taking the life of his own daughter. That's part of the, the, the despicable tragedy of the book of Judges and why it is such a dark period. And the whole book is going to end with an ominous phrase. In those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that now starting to come to the surface in the Jephthah account. So for my money, no, he wasn't a hero. He wasn't, God wasn't backing him in any way. He, he allowed him to save Israel from the Ammonites. But all of that is part of this continuing downward spiral of Israel. And we're going to see Jephthah's end and how this only unfolds even worse uh, by the time of Samson. And then after Samson, it just descends into utter chaos. Um, and that's where a judge is in. So, have a happy week. Child sacrifice. There you go. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Take care.